as the retreat, end of the retreat approaches, we sometimes can feel an impending sense of loss. And it is the loss of some intimacy, some community, some uh, heart space that we have created together. And in large part, it has been done without words. You haven't spoken much to each other. And yet, we have a common understanding because we've come for something of the same purpose. We have listened to the same teachings. When we have spoken, we've shared from our hearts what is true for us, uh, asking sincere questions. And it's easy to believe that there's a significant inner harmony amongst us. And as we begin to disassemble the conditions of the retreat, something gets lost. And it gets lost in the, um, not just the busyness, but the proliferation of our thoughts and communications away from the singularity of the Dharma. And we all have our own lives and we have a lot that we're interested in that we do and when we start speaking with each other we start sharing all of that and it some some unification or some unity that we have come to enjoy here is lost. There's also quite a dissipation of energy. There's a proliferation of thought outside of the Dharma. And we begin to not be able to um, follow through with being with everything that gets provoked. You know, you can have a short conversation with someone and wow, you think about it for the next half hour or more. And here, because we haven't had those kind of conversations for the most part, the mind settles down much quicker. And so I speak of all this because once we start talking, uh, there's a whole new arena of content to learn to be aware of, both process and content, to be aware of. And so much of our life is spent communicating, both receiving communications, sending communications, whether it's through speech or words or writing. And so I want to speak a little bit about uh, speaking. Um, One of the paramis is sila, or the precepts that we have uh, been taking here. And Precepts are activities of non-harming, undertaking a training to refrain from harming by killing, harming by stealing, harming by sexual inconsideration or misconduct, harming by, in this case, wrong speech or um, untruthful speech is the precept and then the use of intoxicants. Another one of the paramis is truthfulness. And while truthfulness is one of the precepts, it also registers significance of being its own parami, one of ten. And it is said that, you know, I told you about the bodhisattva or the Sumedha, the ascetic, who became a bodhisattva with his aspiration to become a Buddha and then lived for hundreds of lifetimes to perfect the qualities of a Buddha to awaken. It is said that in that time, over those lifetimes, 
that developing the uh, paramis, that he never didn't speak the truth. Hundreds of lifetimes. While he broke every other precept, he didn't break that one. And when you think that the Dharma, or when you remember, recall that the Dharma is not just the Buddha's teachings, it is an articulation of the way things are. So it is an articulation of the truth. Um, we could say that our experience as we know it is the Dharma. It is the truth. The truth of our experience is the Dharma. And if if our commitment, if our aspiration is to know the truth, suffering, non-suffering, if our aspiration is to know the truth, our commitment to the truth will, may also require, will require, require that we also speak the truth. So this is, this is a high bar. Truthfulness is a really high bar for training our heart and mind. And we should understand that in every one of us, as we refine our understanding of our aspiration and move towards fulfilling it, there'll be periods of progress, and there'll be periods of, uh, rather than stagnating, how about maturing, and uh, there'll be periods of backsliding. All of those are opportunities to learn about the nature of the journey and the nature of our aspiration, the nature of our commitment. So even though it may look like we're going backwards, and sometimes this is what we hear, when we hear the Dharma, we hear the truth, we hear the perfection of the Buddha, or we hear that we even can acknowledge the direction we're going, and it shines a light on our imperfections. To stand in front of the mirror of the Buddha is to be willing to see all your imperfections, meaning not yet, <laughs> not yet able to make that commitment, not yet able to have that quality of heart, not yet and yet, rather than take that as a, a final judgment of our being, it's an acknowledgement of our honesty and our commitment to awakening, to be able to see the truth, to be able to acknowledge the truth to ourselves. This is the way it is for me. I have room for improvement. And not to be defeated by that, but to accept it as, well, this is this is a current limitation. It is due to causes and conditions, and those causes and conditions change. And our interest in the Dharma, and our hearing the Dharma, and our aspiration for the truth, and our, all the practice that we uh, put into recognizing the truth of each moment is and they are all conditions that affect the present moment and hereafter also. So this is how we change. Not because we have the intention, but because we have the intention, we make the effort, conditions change, and part of the conditions, the changing conditions is our own commitment, our own understanding, our own efforts, our own uh, willingness. So we're never stuck. As much as, and I hear it, Sometimes I feel stuck in my practice, or someone, you know, some of you have mentioned in the group, they just feel like you're stuck, you're at a plateau, or whatever. And I don't take that as a, a final judgment, it's just it's acknowledgement of the truth. You know, you're maturing what you have learned, or ripening, or preparing for the next steep climb. But anyway, tonight I want to speak about right speech because tomorrow we'll be starting speaking, and just to have some guidelines and some of the Buddha's suggestions for right speech can be uh, instructive. Um, 
and guide us, hopefully, towards a little more awareness. I love this poem. I'm going to read a poem. I heard Robert Bly recite this poem the first time I heard it, and it was like... Anyway. It's called The Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug, that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood, storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Words have power. Words are really potent. What we say really does matter to ourselves, to our own heart, and to those who hear what we say. And the karmic consequences of what we say are both immediate and long-ranging, long, far-reaching, I should say. Therefore, we should consider carefully our motivation when speaking. And when I say motivation, I mean both the uh, the reasoning of the motivation, but also the impulse in the mind to speak when we do. Because we speak for many reasons. Sometimes we're lonely. Sometimes we have strong emotions. Sometimes we feel ill at ease being quiet. Uh, sometimes we just want to share who we are, what we believe, what we want, and how it is for us. The effect, or the intended effect of what we say, is equally wide-ranging. Sometimes we want to inform, or perform, connect, share, or help, to impress, to deceive, to confuse, to intimidate, to titillate, to excite, shock, entice, subdue, put down, and the end, the list is endless of what we intend to do with words. So it's helpful to consider what it is that we really want to do with the words we're about to say. Do we want to be right? Do we want to be liked? Do we want to impress? Are we just speaking to relieve tension? Are we conveying knowledge? Are we trying to convince? Why do we speak? It's difficult to know where we're coming from. I'm sure you may have even seen here, in the silence of your own mind, when you just have to write a note to the staff, or some of you have written notes to me, how much goes through your mind just writing a simple note to try to be clear, to try to convey what you want to convey and not more than you want to convey, and... Our motivation is not easy to discern. Often it's unclear, in part because it's often mixed. We come, we want to, we have dual motivations sometimes. But when we are clear in our intention to speak, 
and a motivation for it. While the intention may be clear, the impact may still be painful. And so it is clarity of intention that will allow us to have no no remorse that we have done something wrong, but still it is compassion that can acknowledge that even though my intention was clear and wholesome and genuine, the impact was hurtful. And there's where we need to cultivate awareness to be able to discern the difference between intention and impact. And when we see that the impact is other than our intention, it's wisdom that sees that and makes the adjustment. Better than a thousand hollow words, the Buddha said, is one word that brings peace. Better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace. So the Buddha offered some simple guidelines. Well, I should say, some guidelines. (laughs) For speaking uh, in the everyday, daily conversations that we have. So I want to identify five of them and speak about them. And the first is that when we speak, we should speak with a friendly heart. Meaning we should have some appreciation for, some love of, compassion for, who we're speaking to or where we're coming from. So that whatever it is we have to say, we can say it in a friendly in a friendly way or with a loving heart. And to do that means that we acknowledge our relationship we acknowledge our care, we acknowledge our consideration, our respect for, we acknowledge the value of the relationship to whom we're speaking. Valuing and affirming our interconnectedness. So speaking in this way honors our relationship, maintains and nourishes our connection. And even if what we have to say is may be difficult to hear, if it's spoken with love and respect, it's more likely to be heard. So, we haven't been practicing loving-kindness here directly, or in the formality of the practice, but so much of our attitudes of mind of how we practice, even mindfulness here, is having love and appreciation and connection with ourself. And it's good practice for having that same kind of attitude towards not only our own experience, but our attitude towards our experience of others. Speech which is not from a friendly heart is, in the Buddha's language, Pali, called Pisunawada. And Pisuna is a fiend or demon. And such speech is mean-spirited, malicious, backbiting, slanderous. It is speech used to beguile, to cheat, to deceive, defame, malign others, or damage the reputation. It has the intention or it has the effect of harming the relationship between others. Now, we often don't mean to, to harm our relationship with others or the relationship of two, of two others, but sometimes what we say to someone about someone, we couldn't actually say to them. So this is a test. This is kind of a, a standard. You know, when you find yourself talking to someone else, you're talking to someone about a third person who's not present, Stop and think. Could you say to them what you're saying about them? And if you can't, why? Is it having an effect to harm your listener's relationship with that 
absent person? No, we don't, we don't think we're saying anything to harm their relationship, but it may have that effect. Because when I hear, so when someone talks to me about a third person and they're saying, blah, 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 then my relationship with that absent person, that third person, comes into view. And I think, is this, does this sound right or not? And, you know, it will be affected by what I hear. Even though your intention or the speaker's intention is not necessarily to harm, damage the relationship. more out of carelessness than intent. But if, as we develop our own awareness and we remember to recognize our own experience, when we hear someone speaking to us about a third person, notice how you feel. Now this is where Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you know, when you're having a conversation or you're in a conversation, that you should keep 50% of your attention on your own mind. You can give 50% of your attention to the conversation or to the speaker. You'll hear everything they say, you'll know what they're saying, but you don't want to lose your own mind. Meaning, know what's going on in your mind in relationship to what you hear. Because we may lose our mind. Meaning, it gets taken over by our reactions or what the other person is saying. And we don't see it anymore. We don't see our mind anymore. We're not aware of our mind anymore. When we speak with heightened awareness of friendliness, care, not speaking to uh, harm others, restrain our habits through mindfulness, we become a peacemaker one who tends to, you don't have to try to resolve relationships among others, but to not feed them or fuel them or act on them is a peacemaker. And when we can speak so as to support and to heal relationships of others, then our whole community benefits. So, as you, as we break silence tomorrow, and as we share in the group, and as we, as you begin speaking with who you're riding home with, or whatever, watch, watch your inner monologue about the outer dialogue. It's not, it's not too difficult, it just takes paying attention, a little bit of paying attention. And inside of rotation, it goes so far as to say, if, if 50% of your attention is on the conversation, is 50% here, and you still can't keep an eye on your own mind, well then only give the conversation 30%. <laughs> it's more important that you don't lose your own mind. So, Okay, so the second quality is that when we speak from a loving, kind, friendly place that we speak gently not harshly because much of what we say or much of what we communicate is in the tone the volume our posture whether we have eye contact or not and so much of the message is not the meaning of the words it's the energy with which we're speaking and this is something to pay attention to because when we speak in an ungentle way, sometimes the content is crude or harsh, unkind, cruel, and we are rough in our language when we curse, I confess, I sometimes do also, when I taunt or belittle, not so much, but sometimes. But when we speak in a way that isolates others or identifies some characteristic of others in a demeaning way, whether it's size, shape, color, texture, birth, gender preference, sexual preference, class level, education level, physical capability, or whatever, 
And we speak about these things in a way that, why? Well, sometimes it's harsh. It's, it's commenting in such a way, maybe not to them, but about them, uh, that sometimes may exhibit more of our own discomfort with ourselves rather than any quality of who we're talking about. When we give attention to the energy with which we speak and the content of what we talk about, then, and we refrain from harsh language, then we speak in a way that reaches the heart of another person, where another person is willing to let their heart be touched by the energy and the content of what you're saying. And this creates a feeling of intimacy and connection. And when, when we are rough or when someone is speaking to us in a rough or cursing or belittling or shaming way, we don't, we feel it. We feel that we don't want to feel, we don't want to feel it. It's unpleasant. Yeah. So we can learn from that ourselves if we pay attention to how we feel when spoken to harshly. And hopefully it will help guide how we speak and to refrain from speaking harshly. I'm reminded of when I was in the monastery in Burma. Saito Pandita, my teacher, had, um, he was well known throughout Burma. And he had invited uh, probably 15, 20, 25 young monks to come to Rangoon to train with him. And these were the monks that were number one in the national exams, or number two each year in the national exams. The ones who had the most uh, efficient meditation practice. They were just, well, the cream of the crop, if you will. And he brought them to Rangoon to study with him, to learn English, and to train to be able to teach, speak English, and basically they were going to be the emissaries of the Mahasi tradition uh, in the Burmese Biharas throughout the world. Now, every major city of the world has one of those monks in it, in a Burmese Bihara. There's a dozen here in the U.S., in, Can- in Canada, in Europe, and they're, they're all around because he spent the time with them to train them to be a monk, how to be a good monk, how to teach, how to and taught them, or let them learn English. Well, they really wanted to talk to me because I could speak English, and they liked to talk to me, but they were told, don't bother the foreigners. But I was also curious about them. So, you know, it was one of those, can I find an excuse to go see them? <laughs> and they all lived in one section of the monastery, fairly close to where I was, and they were all always just hanging out there practicing their English and they helped run the meditation center. They had jobs of sorts. And um, when I would go there, uh, I would need some instruction on how to do my robes or something. I'd have a question about something. And I was always curious about them because they were, they were special, they were special, special dudes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I could not get them to say anything about each other. They wouldn't say anything, even though I knew I'd heard, you know, oh, this guy was number one in the, in the, you know, last year's exam, and this guy has memorized, you know, a third of the Tibetica or two thirds of the Tibetica or whatever. It's just like, oh, these guys, I got. They wouldn't say. They would not speak about each other in any way that could be construed, either to be praising or certainly not criticizing. And I think there was an understanding, and what I got from that is the understanding that the fabric of our community is as fragile as the intention of everything we say. Because once you let loose an unskillful intention in speaking or criticizing someone, it just goes. It just ripples through, and the whole fabric of our community gets weakened and threatened and torn and it's almost impossible 
to put back together. When I was first preparing a talk on right speech after I disrobed, I looked through the monks' rules. Now, the monks, monks live by rules, 227 rules, and the rules have a lot of footnotes or subcategories, if you will. It said there's more than 90 million, 90 million rules. Everything about your life as a monk is guided by rules. What you can eat, when, where, how, where, what robes you wear, when, talking to people, when, where, how, speaking the dialogue, everything is, you know, even this is not allowed. Show it, laughing to show your teeth, not allowed. And everything is just covered. Anyway, there were more rules about speaking than any other topic. And I th- and some of them were some of the rules were about practicing mindfulness, you know, for the goal of liberation. Some of them were about harmony in the community, and some of them were about not offending or not harming the faith of lay people. That's interesting. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so speaking with the friendly, loving kind, compassionate heart, gently, in a way that can reach the heart of the listener. The third condition is to speak the truth. This is the precept that we've taken here. But, we know from our own experience how difficult it is to speak only the truth. And if you know anyone, as I inquired earlier in the retreat, if you know anyone who has a commitment to the truth, or more of a commitment to the truth, it's really distinctive. You know, they're very careful in how they say what they say, and really try to not say what isn't true. So we don't have to just think of Gandhi or Martin Luther King or others, but they are an example. I'm sure we all have those in our life who have more of a commitment to the truth. We can see that. So as we break our silence and we begin to speak to each other, just watch how much and when we embellish a fact, take a fact, but embellish it, or when we exaggerate in a way that is misleading or deceiving, or when we uh, speak in hyperbole without acknowledging the footnotes, so to speak, because it's important. You know, and as the poem said, though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. The darkness of deception and confusion and not knowing what the heck's going on. We all know what that's like. When it gets out of the the intimacy of person-to-person conversation, it gets into the national uh, dialogue of our country. One of the, uh, as a monk, uh, when you first ordain, you are told that there are four rules that you can never break. If you break any of these four rules, you're automatically disrobed, and you cannot ordain again the rest of this life. It's bad. You can't, you can't confess it, do a probation, penance, and it's... Okay? One of those rules is not to misrepresent your spiritual attainment. And you think, what? I mean, killing, killing someone... That, that's one of the other rules. But, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> but misrepresenting your spiritual attainment, why would that be such a uh, such an offense that you're automatically disqualified for being a monk? Well, monks are respected as the holders, the carriers of the Dharma. And it's not it's not particularly personal to them. When I when I was when I was at the monastery, I was there for four months practicing as a layman. You know, with 
lay clothes on, Burmese lay clothes on. And I was totally anonymous. Nobody saw me. I was just completely invisible, just doing my thing. But the day I got ordained, you know, shave your head, put on robes, walk out of the ordination hall, suddenly, I was, it wasn't that I personally felt like a different person, but everybody treated me like a different person. I was now a monk. I was a representative of the teachings of the Buddha, and as a representative of the Buddha, I was due respect and honor and whatever, just like, and it really calls you to step up to to, to step up to the role in your inner life. <clears throat> so, when lay people have that kind of relationship to monks, as oh, this is a this is a representative of the Buddhist teaching. This is our highest aspiration. Not not to become a monk, but to be free. When a monk deceives them, he threatens their faith, and their faith is what propels them to, or encourages them to undertake the practice to free themselves from suffering. And if you damage someone's faith, if someone's faith is damaged, it doesn't, it doesn't just last for a weekend or a week or until that other person's out of sight. It can last for lifetimes. And so, in some ways, you, you harm them, the monk who speaks deceptively, about their own attainments, harms the faith of others. So too lay teachers. If we're speaking in such a way as to deceive you, and you have faith in our expression of the Dharma, I mean, you know, when we are, you know, disillusioned with teachers, and it happens. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it happens. You know, teachers act out in ways that Okay, so it, it questions, it brings into question uh, our faith in them. If you speak delusion, everything becomes a delusion, Ryokan, Japanese hermit monk says. If you speak the truth, everything becomes the truth. <coughs> outside of the truth, there is no delusion, but outside delusion, there's no special truth. Followers of the Buddha's way... Why do you so earnestly seek the truth in distant places? Look for delusion and truth in the bottom of your own heart. So, have you made a commitment to always speak the truth? Are you a liar? Well, between these two is, well... I speak the truth when it's convenient, and I shade the truth when it's convenient. That seems to be social lubrication, you know, kind of like not having to say what might harm another or offend another if it's the truth, but also not wanting to expose ourselves. But you know what? That commitment may not be sufficient for liberation. It may be convenient for getting by, okay, but it may not be sufficient for liberation. It's something to keep an eye on, how that lack of commitment affects your ability to see the truth, to see and know your own truth. You know the story, I, I, I think this is a, kind of like a childhood story, I, I, can't remember now. I've kind of lost track. But isn't there a isn't there a child story? I don't think it's a bedtime story because it sounds scary. But isn't there a story about the little boy who was entrusted to take care of the village sheep out on the hillside, right? So he was entrusted to look after the sheep and to keep the wolves from running off of the sheep. So one day the little boy is out there watching the sheep. And he's get, he gets bored. Gets bored. <sighs> Nothing happening here. So he says, ah, I'm going to play a trick on them. So he cries, wolf, wolf, you know, to alarm and alert the villagers that there's, there's a wolf threatening their sheep. 
so the villagers come running out to the little boy. Where's the sheep? And I mean, where's the wolf? And you know, we've got to take care of our sheep. And the little boy laughs. He says, "Ha ha ha! Fooled you. There's no wolf." And they go, "You shouldn't do that. That's not nice." Okay, okay, okay. So he's back at work. A couple of weeks later, he's bored again. And he says, ah, I'm going to do that again. So he goes, wolf, wolf. And the villagers come out to protect their assets, their communal assets. And the little boy's laughing again. He says, I told you there's no wolf. <coughs> A couple of weeks later, he's bored again. And he goes, wolf, wolf. And the villagers say, hey, don't listen to him. There's no wolf. He's just fooling us. By that time, there was actually a wolf. And the wolf carried off their sheep. And so the community lost their common resource. <clears throat> you know anybody who's crying wolf, misleading the community? And what is it they're getting out of it? So, we should be careful about speaking falsely because we can lose our common property what it is that we share in our hearts and, and communally by not speaking the truth. So, to speak with a friendly, loving heart, to speak gently, not harshly, to speak the truth. Fourth consideration is to speak only what is beneficial to another. Okay. So, someone gave me this little ditty. Consider before you speak whether what you say will improve upon silence. <laughs> okay. What have I got to say? Anyway, so, speaking what is beneficial. Now, even if what we have to say is true, and we can say it lovingly and gently, is there any value to it? Is it just useless, frivolous, chit-chat, gossip, meaningless, no purpose, <coughs> filling up the airwaves? That kind of speech is, in the Pali, Pali the language of the Buddha, called Sampapalapawara. Which sounds a little bit like useless and frivolous and meaningless speech. Gossip, for example. So you might you might inquire, well what what's the harm in a little banter and a little you know, playful whatever? Well, nothing, really. Uh, in, as far as a greet and meet and banter and you know, high out whatever. But if that's the level of conversation or the depth of conversation that we are comfortable with, we may never get to anything more important. We may stay at that surface, superficial level of the news and last night's TV program and are you going to the movie and did you see whatever, or talking about others. You might look in your own life and just see that when you hear a piece of gossip, as we do, how long did it take before you share it with somebody? Have you ever been told a piece of gossip that you never told another person? It's really amazing. I mean, when you start watching from that perspective, you can see, wow. And it doesn't even have to be gossip, it can be, you know, did you see what so-and-so said in the news? And we just kind of pass it on. <clears throat> Without really considering, was this of value to me? Is this going to be of value to anybody else? Mm -hmm. Is this just, you know, titillating? Or are you being seen <clears throat> as somebody who's got the, got the goods, you know, knows something that somebody else doesn't know? Why is it that we share that kind of stuff? Now, you know, this is kind of a, well, I mean, the, the, the question is, well, well, what should we speak about? Well, the Buddha was very thorough, as you know. He had lists for everything. <laughs> and so, you know, when asked, well, what should we talk about, you know, as 
the monks or nuns inquired, the Buddha had a list of topics. Now, you got to remember, he was talking to monks and nuns. Monks and nuns have devoted their life to awakening, and they're 24-7, 365. They're not... Okay? So, just take this, take this list with a grain of salt. But, so the Buddha indicated what topics were not edifying for those who wish to free their heart. So, talk of kings and ministers and all politicians. Okay. All right. Robbers and other criminals, armies and wars, dangers, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, cosmetics and jewelry, relatives, the opposite gender, (laughs) heroes, the deceased, villages, towns, cities, countries, street and well gossip, philosophical speculation on being and non-being, and random adultery chat that lacks a definite plan, regularity, purpose, and it's not connected to anything. (laughs) Wow. Okay, there goes Hollywood, there goes TV, most magazines, and... Jeez, what's left? I, I don't know. It's not. I mean, it's like, can we talk about anything? Well, the Buddha is very. I mean, the Buddha is very thorough. He's also got a list of things that we could talk about. <laughs> so just consider these as topics for your next uh, social <laughs> evening, <laughs> social evening with friends. Uh, you know, tomorrow night when you get home and you're going out with friends, you could you could pick one of these topics. Talk on simplicity. <laughs> Contentment, living in, with, in seclusion, uh, being quiet, making efforts to be aware, virtue, you know, keeping the precepts, concentration, your understanding of the truth, and the, the, your experiences of liberation in this retreat. In essence, talking about the Dharma. I'll take a bottle of wine and let's talk about the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we, I mean, we laugh because we think, I don't know if I would even dare bring up the topic, but among Dharma friends, I mean, I've, I've lived in situated both at the meditation center and in the monastery, and I've done home practice before with others at home, where when you're practicing or when you're, when you're with Dharma friends, the speaking of Dharma is really energizing. It's very uplifting. It's very brightening of the mind. So one time, uh, after I disrobed, I started teaching the three-month course at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And uh, I was teaching with Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, uh, Michelle McDonald, and Stephen Smith. And that was our team. And for many years, we taught the three-month course. Well, I, I, I I cannot remember what the heck we were talking about, but our weekly teacher meetings were just long and tedious and and just endless discussions about, I can't remember what, but it was just draining. And one year we decided, this has got to stop, we just got to do something different, so let's just hurry through the business part of the meeting, and then we'll get to a Dharma part of the meeting. And so we said, okay, this year we're going to do something different. Twelve-week course is a long time. So you've, you've, you've shared all the gossip that you want with each other, and now you've got to get down to filling up the airways or something else. So we said, okay, let's get the business work done. And as soon as we get that done, each person, each week, will one person will have the floor to talk about their Dharma practice, both their <coughs> practice of Vipassana, and the practice of samatha or jhana practice, as much as they can, as much as they want to, speaking of all the difficulties as well as all of their attainments, if any, or whatever high points of the practice. Unbelievable. It was so, it wasn't like it was so exciting, like, wow, wow, wow. It wasn't that. It was just so inspiring and so uplifting and so encouraging to hear. I mean, we've all, we all been practicing for years, decades, and it wasn't all easy either, tough. And there were some, you know, benefits too. And it was just like, wow, don't ever pass up the opportunity to share 
your experiences of the Dharma because it's with other <coughs> Dharma folks because it's so inspiring, so uplifting, it's so connecting. The Dharma is not superficial. When we practice here and we hear the Dharma and we view our own Dharma, it is as deep as it gets in here. So we want to be careful how and when we speak about the Dharma. Because as Dharma practitioners, when we speak of the Dharma to others, we become a Kalyanamita. We become a spiritual friend, sharing our challenges, sharing our limitations, sharing our current uh, challenges, as well as our uh, positive experiences or development of the heart. Sometimes, though, as Dhamma Kalayanamitas, sometimes we have to share difficult stuff with one another, which is not just our own limitations and challenges, but sometimes in a community, in a Dharma community, we need to help each other recognize unskillful behavior. And it takes courage, but it takes sincerity, it takes a humility, and it takes a kind of a, an appreciation of the value of the community to do that. It's not just a one-on-one, I think you're... It's not that. But as a community, sometimes we have to offer feedback or offer an observation. It's hard. It's hard to hear. And yet, it needs to be done for the preservation of one's own practice and for the, for the community. So, speaking with a friendly heart, gently, what is truthful and beneficial. And the fifth element of well-spoken speech is to speak at the right time. And this may be the most difficult. Um, condition to meet because speaking at the right time means that you really care that the other person hears what you're, what you're saying is able to hear, is in a place to hear and if it's not the right time you could waste your energy and offend others and you know when when you're when you're caught in the heat of an argument, it's really hard to get your message across. All you all you all you display or all you convey is anger, you know. And whether you're right or think you're right, or whether you care or think you care, that may not come across. It's just not the right time to try to express that. So. To know the right time means that we are able to monitor ourselves and the other to evaluate when is the time that what we have to say. And it requires a lot of patience. And it also requires us holding the possibility that there will never be a right time. If what you've got to say is true, beneficial, you can say it lovingly, Gently, but not the right time. That time may never come. That requires patience. That requires letting go. That requires a real humility and kind of a recognition that, you know, we each are autonomous and we still all contribute to the community. So it's not easy to forbear our anger and attendant self-righteousness. But, if we wait, sometimes it can be heard better the next day than it can be heard now. And in the same way, it's not appropriate to talk about the Dharma at a cocktail party. 
cocktail parties are for something else, for whatever you do, cocktail parties. And the, 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 and while you may think you have really deep conversations with people at cocktail parties, <laughs> take a look. Because think of this, the Dharma as we have experienced it here is very precious to us. We've invested a lot in this. It really has touched our heart and we're sensitive about that. And cocktail parties sometimes can get a little boisterous and careless and you can say something about your Dharma practice and if the recipient doesn't hear it or doesn't respect it or doesn't know it, they can say something or they can dismiss it or they can (coughs) challenge you in a way that really threatens your faith. And so it's not skillful. It's just not skillful to hang your faith out there in a situation that it might not be recognized or respected. So when we leave here and we go home, we join our social circle, we go to work, we meet our employees, employers, or co-workers, and someone, many, maybe say, hey, how's your retreat? What can you say? Well, general guidelines is if it's a casual inquiry for social connection only, then just respond in a casual way for social connection only. They don't really want to hear about your retreat. Right? So, was, you know, how was it? It was everything. It was, it was everything. Yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> On the other hand, there may be those who have practiced the Dharma. They have done retreats. They, you may have a Dharma connection with them, and they inquire, and the time and the setting is right to share a little more. Fine, that's okay. But think about it. What can you say about a retreat? I mean, the schedule is not of interest to them. You know, the food is not of interest to them. The weather is not of interest to them. They want something from you. But the deepest understanding you have of yourself is, well, it's fragile. It's tentative. It's an opening. It's tender. And again, can we really understand? I mean, a lot of times people open their hearts. We, we don't. I mean, we have some level of understanding, but we not. We may not be ready to hear what they've got to say. So, be careful. Be careful of your faith. Protect your faith. You're not being closed and you know just kind of stiff and cut off and shut off from people. You're taking care of yourself. Those who understand the Dharma won't be offended. But we want to protect it from, we want to protect our faith from superficial or socially expected inquiries, especially skeptical. So these are the conditions that the Buddha suggested for consideration when speaking. To speak so as to be a peacemaker, to be kind, to be intimate, to be trustworthy, to speak the truth, to be a benefactor, a mentor, and to be effective. It's a high bar. And yet, so much of our life is about communicating, speaking, listening, sharing. And so much of our sense of belonging, community, safety, is through speaking. It's a big part of our life. It's a big part of our practice. And so I encourage you to consider just how you can bring awareness and understanding to speaking. And know that it's it's a lifelong commitment. It's not like you get it and you got it. It's like you get it and then you gotta get it again and again and again and again. And eventually, habits form, but 
it takes time. It takes practice. That's why we call it practice. Practice being aware. It's easy to be aware at the moment. It's hard to be aware continuously. That's what we're aiming for. So, may you be, may you have the faith to make that effort. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.